Welcome to episode 148 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? You know, we're always in a bit of a rush when we have to do question casts or when we get to do question casts because we want to keep our show to like 60 or 70 minutes. And if we let ourselves go, we could get to like a thousand minutes on question casts. So we're going to skip affirmations and denials, sort of. But I wanted to bring up a cool little time management tool that I found. Have you ever heard of an app called SkedPal? S-K-E-D pal. It is like the sweetest thing I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) Have you ever tried it? There's like a free trial available. I haven't because I'm super cheap. It it's awesome. So you you basically you put in like it imports your Google Calendar, so all your appointments that you've got on there are accounted for. And then you put in all your tasks, how long you think they're gonna do them, and you can kind of set like what days of the week or what times of day you think are best to do them. Um, And then you hit go and it like slots in all of your tasks in between all of your other stuff that's going on. It's really slick. It's kind of like calendar AI. It's like robots doing the scheduling for you. It's kind of like having an assistant. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, I've talked about that feature that Google uh, Calendar has on like the phone for Google Goals. It's kind of like that, but all the stuff that Google Goals is missing this has so like the ability to say, I don't want to do tasks on the weekend, or I only want to do these tasks on the weekend rather than just like a time of day. It's really slick. People should check it out. It's not super, uh, it's not super expensive, but it's also not cheap. But for someone who like time management is a challenge or has a, a lot going on, I could actually see it being worth the cost to like go for a full subscription on there. Does it have that built in Sabbatarian option? You could build in, uh, like no work on Sundays kind of thing. I mean, you no, no, could, no, no. I mean, full, full bore. Like you're like, Hey, I'd really like to go to lunch on this day. It's like, ah, I don't think so. Yeah. Like that program actually shuts down. It's just a big That's picture of the, the number Lord's four. <laughs> you try to schedule something on Sunday and it's like, what are you doing? Heathen? <laughs> That's the, that's the notice that comes up. Yeah. You said you were Christian. Yeah, exactly. There's like a task list. There's a hot list of things you missed. And then there's like a sin list of all the stuff you tried to schedule on Sunday. <laughs> and it's split by sins of commission yeah, and omission. Exactly. Here's the stuff you did. You didn't even realize you offended God. Yeah. What, what it's really cool for or really useful for is like if you want to read a bunch of books, but you want to read them in a particular order, you can set them up sequentially. So that way it like won't it won't assign you to read a a book further down in your list until you finish the one above. So it's really got a lot of cool applications. I'm using it for work right now because I've got so many different things going on at work that it's really hard for me to keep them straight. So now that I've added them all into this list, it's it's helping me kind of like make the most of my time. This has got to be one of only a handful of podcasts where somebody just said, hey, you know, the best thing about Sketch app is I got all these books I want to read <laughs> and I don't want to read them out of order. Yeah, Can somebody exactly. help me arrange that? Yeah. That's great. So, Jesse, question cast. So, Tony, it is question it's cast. It's been a little while since and we've done a full question cast, hasn't it? Yeah, it's a good thing we're doing this because the inbox is runneth over, like pressed down, shaking together, overflowing with all kinds of voicemails. So what do you say we we hit a couple of these? Let's do it. 
All right, here we go. Hello, gentlemen. This is Jimmy from Philadelphia. Uh, this question feels a bit odder, but I've, it's been in the back of my head for a couple of weeks. So Paul will say of his sin in Romans that it's not longer I who sin, but sin in me. And then in Galatians, he'll talk about the work that Christ has done to him and say, not I, but Christ in me. So it seems to me that you could divide up most of what we do in our existence as acts of sin or acts for the kingdom. Usually most are muddled with both. Um, but if it's not us, but sin in us that does evil, and if it's not us, but Christ in us that does good, well, then what are exactly are we doing where does where do the where do we begin if that makes sense what kind of agency do we really have uh it's a little more philosophical a little more a little less solid but hoping you guys could help me shed some light on this or at least give me some language that's useful way to speak about it thanks hope you guys have a great week bye so our boy Jimmy from Philadelphia, once again, giving us a call and leaving an excellent question. And he packed a lot into what he said, but I'm going to summarize it this way. I think at the center of what he's asking is, as human beings, what kind of free agency do we really have? That, that's really the center of his question. He talks a little bit about, of course, about Christ in us and sin existing in us and how do we parcel those things out and what kind of will do we really have? And so let me start by saying this. I think that free agency is a mark of human beings. So everybody who's like shouting right now at their listening devices, because I've just said that, hear me out for a second. So all humans are free agents in the sense that we're making our own decisions as to what we're going to do and choosing as we please in light of the sense of some kind of intuition of right or wrong and the inclinations that we feel. So for that reason, Human beings are more agents and we're answerable to God and to each other for all of our voluntary actions. That was the case with Adam, both before and after he sinned. It's the case with us now. And incidentally, it's also the case with glorified saints who are confirmed in grace in the sense that they no longer have it in them to sin. Inability to sin will be one of the delights, of course, and glories of heaven, but it's not going to terminate anyone's humanness. Glorified right. saints will still make choices in accordance with their nature. And those choices will not be any less the product of human free agency just because they will always be good and right. So there's a lot of teaching, and you know more about this than I, but really Christian teachers going back to like the second century have defined free will as the ability to choose all the moral options that the situation offers. And that's what I mean by this free agency, I think, being impounded and embedded in human nature. Augustine affirmed against Pelagius and most of the other Greek fathers that original sin didn't rob us of free will in that particular sense. Right. So we have no natural ability to discern and choose God's way because we have no natural inclination Godward. Our hearts are in bondage to sin, and the only the grace of regeneration can free us from that kind of slavery. Man, that was tough to say. So <laughs> that, like for substance, that's what Paul taught in Romans 6. That's what he's getting at. He, when he says, and we've said this on the show before, only the freed will freely and heartily chooses righteousness. Really, the only true human is the one that's been regenerated by God. Right. Because that is the one that is not by their own fruition, but by the changed and regenerated will, able to choose love and centeredness toward God. So a permanent love of righteousness, that is like an inclination of the heart to the way of living that God pleases, is one aspect of the freedom that Christ gives. So that's like the long answer to how I would say, is there, what kind of agency do we have? There is a free will human agency. We, we need to be a little bit careful in terms of 
we're speaking about Christ in us, that's reflective more of a relationship and the covenant that we have by God's good graciousness and giving of his son and the Holy Spirit to affirm that, uh, then it is a statement of, well, we don't have any agency. It's just Christ working in us as if we were puppets at some point. Right. Do, do you see where I'm going with that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a couple things that we have to, like, lay the groundwork for before we can even answer a question like this, is we have to talk about what agency even is. And then what we have to talk about is what does it mean for an agency to be free? So uh, agency is like the ability to act or like the discrete ability to act as an individual or as an entity. So we, would, we wouldn't say that a tree or a rock has agency or a river has agency because it's it's really just like a blind matter of of like physics, right? A rock exists and sits exactly where it is as a result of a long causal chain of events that ultimately can be explained by physics. But agency involves creatures and not just humans, not just angels, but creatures who can make decisions that are not driven by the laws of physics. But a free agency could also kind of be called a moral agency. So like my dog it isn't really a free agent because um, it's not a she's not a moral agent, but she still makes decisions, right? She makes the decision whether to jump down off the bed in the middle of the night or whether to stay in the bed in the middle of the night. She makes decisions about whether she wants to play with this toy or that toy. So even though she has a range of options in front of you, in front of her, um, what you said there toward, towards the end of that little explanation is key is it's the range of moral options and being able to take all of the moral options in front of them. That's what we're talking about right. when we talk about a free agency versus just a, like a regular creaturely agency. And then on top of that, we have to understand in a reformed perspective that God's agency and sovereignty does not um, does not exist on the same uh, the same register as ours. So we talk about how you know Arminians or, or others who want to refute reform theology tend to look at divine agency and human agency or or angelic agency as though they exist on the same uh, like the same level, such that God, God has a certain amount of agency and, and if he gets his way and I'm not able to contradict his his will or his desire for a particular situation and and cause his will not to come about that somehow my agency is limited so either either the creature can limit God's agency or God can limit the creature's agency but in a reformed paradigm on these kinds of things it's actually God's agency that establishes our creaturely agency so God right. God willed that we would be free to choose from all of the moral uh, options that are laid in front of us rather than uh, determining our wills as a matter of like the laws of physics or something like that. Right. That That's well said. I mean, we have to remember that will is an abstraction. So my will is not like the part of me, which I choose to move or not to move. It's not like my hand or my foot. It's me choosing to act and right. then going into that action. So it's almost more accurate to say, I am a morally responsible free agent. I'm a slave of sin whom Christ must liberate. And I'm a fallen being who can only has it in me to choose against God until God renews my heart. Right. Actually, this is what makes the gospel so profound. It's not just a Band-Aid. It's not taking over the agency of something in the sense of, in a way in which they are now subject to something that they wouldn't want to be subject to. This is the whole point of irresistible grace, isn't it? That our agency itself is totally redefined. It's not just rehabilitated, it's regenerated such that that which God desires for us, that's which is the truly reflective of the heart of God and his character is now something that we actually desire because he has allowed us 
by setting us free to desire it. So it's still all his power. And yet at the same time, somehow we're so wonderfully and thoroughly transformed that now the moral options that are available to us, the ability to not only see them more clearly and discern them appropriately, we actually want to do them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. And the other element of this is, you know, we've mentioned this in a variety of ways over the last maybe 15 episodes or so, is there is this um, misunderstanding among a particular kind of swath of Calvinists who think that our, the, the point of Calvinism is that humans don't have free will. And so they end up in this sort of hyper-Calvinism where humans are just sort of acting out the script that God has given them. And right. so they would say that prior to, um, prior to regeneration, humans are utterly incapable in a natural sense. And like a, 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 they're, they're prevented from choosing Christ but in reality, prior to regeneration, all humans have the same exact ability to choose Christ. But what's corrupted about humans is that their wills are bent in towards themselves. So our natures are, are corrupt in such a sense that left to our own devices, we will always choose the selfish option. We always choose the option that we think benefits us the most. Um, that's what we desire. And so that's how we engage our, our action. That's how we operate. And so we never left to our own devices will actually choose Christ. That doesn't mean that there isn't an actual option in front of us that we could choose if we so desire. The key is that our desires are so bent in on ourselves that we never will. And so what happens in, uh, in re- regeneration is essentially God takes our wills, which are bent in on themselves, and he turns them back outward and orients them towards himself. And that's why grace is irresistible, because what he's doing is he's he's correcting our desires and our, our will such that he graciously gives us the desire now to choose him such that while we formerly only chose what was selfish and oriented towards ourselves, now we choose what is glorious and glorifying to God, which is to depend on him for salvation. So, right. so that's where the agency it comes in. It's true in a, in a particular sense that our agency is free, whether it's bent in on ourselves or, or oriented outwards, it's free in that we still follow our will. We're not compelled to do something that we don't desire to do. And we're not prohibited from doing anything that we desire to do. So our agency is still free. It's just not free in the libertarian sense that there's nothing causally determining our actions. The libertarian free will perspective, which is kind of the position most Arminians hold, would render every decision to be utterly arbitrary because there's no preceding cause that would would determine that choice. Where in the compatibilist model, which is what Calvinists hold, the preceding cause of our actions is our desire. Um, So, you know, our agency is as free as any agents, any creaturely agency can be. Right. I think maybe this is mostly a question of how free agency and nature interact, which is what you just explained there. Right. Right. And we wouldn't yeah. we wouldn't say, for example, that because I'm not able to fly unaided by some sort of mechanical means that I'm therefore not free because it's just a limitation of my nature that 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 option is not available to me because my nature is such that it's just not it's not available to me that doesn't restrict my freedom it restricts my ability um whereas with decisions about following christ it's a moral it's a moral inability not a physical or a natural inability naturally we're able to choose christ but morally we are not able to choose christ 
And that's why the nature is so important, because this is where, like you said, we're going to look at these words very differently from Arminian brothers and sisters, because they're going to interpret this as saying, well, that free will is, in fact, the ability to make the choice, a moral choice for God or against God. And what we're saying is that everything, even the, the person bound in sin, is still a free agent in that freedom allows them to interact with all of the available options to them that correspond to their nature. And because our nature is sinful, of course, they will choose one of any number of options that are sinful and that pull us away from God. And we do not have the ability. In other words, there's no equality there, morally speaking, when we are born in sin, because the tendency will just be to move in that direction. That will be what was is normative until there is something else, a greater transcendent force that changes what is normative. And that's what's beautiful about the gospel is that it can change what is your normative position from destruction into life. And that's what makes it so beautiful. It's not, of course, just about getting to heaven. It's not just about getting the benefits of Christ. It's about having that true libertarian freedom in which now not only can you see what is the greatest good option, but why, if you can see it, would you not choose it? And since God is the greatest good, having our eyes open to him means that we would irresistibly go towards him. Right. So there's so much logic in here that, of course, is that, that comports with how we understand freedom. But also, it, this is exactly what the Bible teaches. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just one maybe last thought before we move on to the next question. The, the position that most um, Arminians take about what, what is required or what's necessary to constitute a free agency, that position that they take actually renders humans free, but it renders God to be not free. And so right. they would say that unless you have the the... Uh, genuine moral ability to choose between option A and option B, whatever those two options may be, that you don't have a genuinely free will. But God doesn't have the option to not love his son, for example. He doesn't have the option to um, to break his own covenant. So, so those things are not available to God. So by that definition of freedom that, that the Arminian is operating under, God is not a free agent. Um, whereas if you operate on this compatibilist model where, um, we operate according to our natures and we operate according to our greatest desire, then God is not just a free agent, but he's the most free agent because all that God ever does is operate according to his perfect holy will. Whereas the creature, sometimes we, we do something that we think is our greatest desire, and we realize that it actually isn't, or we, we, we misunderstand what our own greatest desires are, both consciously and subconsciously, right? That's why you get people who sometimes override their, um, override their like, uh, survival instincts and do really stupid things because our, our desires are disordered. So even though we're following sinful desires, sometimes we don't even do that efficiently. So God, however, is the most free agent, uh, because he's able to, with perfection, follow the the perfections of his desires and execute them perfectly. Right on. Well, we're making good time here. We've already answered thoroughly every question about free will and human agency. Yeah. So let's keep this need, show going. We don't need any more questions like that because we just solved the problem. Done. Timestamp it. All right. Let's hit the next one. Hey, Tony and Jesse. Uh, this is, um, thanks for your podcast. I try to listen every week and I love it. And so Keel was a good work. I was just calling with a question for the question cast um, or just whenever you want to answer it. Uh, my name is Adam, and I'm a pastor of a small non-denominational church in Arkansas. 
And I have been at this church for about seven and a half years now, six as associate pastor, and now uh, as a lead pastor for about a year and a half. And I have been Calvinistic, I, I would say, since college and seminary, uh, ever since my dad gave me J.R. Packers Knowing God when I went off to school. But I've been growing through years, and now I would describe myself as more confessional, describing to the 1689. And my church, and which I love and committed to, is a committed Bible church. We teach the Bible. We uh, do everything that we do rooted in the Bible. Um, but we have a very generic and broad statement of faith, and our membership is made up of people from all sorts of church backgrounds or even lack thereof. And our elders have a diverse background as well, though they're very solid men and meet the qualifications of elders. So I have a two-part question. Should I seek to move my church in a more confessional direction um, as explicitly reframing our statement of faith and so on? And if so, what would be some steps that you would suggest I take or the church takes for this to happen? Understanding that, of course, the leadership of the church would have to be on board. But beyond that, where are some steps that we can take to move our church if that's the right thing to do? Well, thanks uh, so much for your podcast. Uh, look forward to hearing a response if you guys have time. And yeah, thank you. So first, I just want to say I appreciate Adam's question. And even more so, I appreciate Adam as a pastor. So I want to give him kudos for just the way in which he's been so thoughtful about his role that God has given him and the work that God's doing in his life and also his own processing of the confessions, how he might bring that into his church. And so this is a great question for really for anybody, I think for pastors and also for those who attend churches that maybe aren't confessional in a very formal sense, should Adam move his church in a more confessional direction? And if so, what are some steps that Adam can take to bring his church and their statement of faith into alignment with a confession? And, and he's picked a good one, of course, with the 1689. So let me at least address the first part of that. And you can piggyback on me. And especially, I think, Tony, you could really lend some good insight into the second part. How do you make that move if that's something you want to do? So I think we would both maybe, I'm, I'm saying, going to say you agree with me, resoundly answer this question very simply by saying, yes. If you can, yeah. yes, it would yeah. be great for you to move your, your church. And I want to give like three quick reasons in my mind why when I talk about this, why I think the confessions are important. We've actually talked at length why confessions are important, um, how they're historically the church has really employed the confessions and catechisms as well. I'd encourage that as a compliment in an effort to codify and teach all of God's people. That's children, new converts, faithful Christians. This is about the faith once delivered to the saints. And as Christians, we really should embrace a mature biblical norm of confessing our faith. That is, in fact, the biblical pattern. But here's the three reasons I would give to support why I would say, yes, if you're in a position of authority and you can reasonably move your church in this direction, here's why you should really consider it. First, written confessions represent maturity. A confessional communion is not unintentionally arbitrary and disconnected. And what I mean by that is it's really easy nowadays. You and I have talked about this, Tony. It's really easy to produce some kind of like weird personal statement of faith or like a position paper on some kind of narrow subject. But these classic creeds, these confessions produced by seasoned Christians stand the test of time because the confession is a mature, proven set of beliefs. Right. So wouldn't you rather be guided by that kind of statement than some kind of like ill-defined set of beliefs or an immature statement of faith? The second reason is, you know, written confessions keep believers from having to reinvent the wheel. And we've talked about this too. If a person need not formulate every bit of doctrine himself, that is, if he's humble enough to listen quickly to other saints, like James talks about in the first chapter of his book, he can really spare himself considerable time and countless dead ends. And there's an amazing amount of value in that. 
And, and the third reason I would give is written confessions are a non-prejudicial way of telling outsiders what we believe. And I think this is even so much more important in our day and age because yeah. we live among people that really are saying at least that they crave authenticity and transparency. And a lot of people get fed up with this Christianity writ large, which has these kind of trust me statements or our doctrinal statement is Jesus. And that's okay. But a confession is unashamedly a public act. It means that what we believe is neither secret nor subject to individual taste. It enables any of the visitors that come to you to find out what we believe. And especially in this age where people are going to go to the website first, get something about your church and find out who you are. This is what you'd like to be front and center. So there's many more reasons I could give. But in my mind, those are the top reasons that come up when I think, why would somebody want to move their church in this direction? Those are top for me. What about for you? Yeah, I mean, those are all really, really good um, points. Those are all really good reasons. Um, I would add to that that, um, you know, a lot of times when churches write their own confessions of faith, um, even a really well-trained, really theologically astute um, pastor or or body of elders in our modern era is not usually as well um doesn't have as much theological acumen as the men who wrote the Westminster Confession and then the Savoy Declaration and the the Second London Baptist Confession. So it's kind of one of those things like, do you think that you can do better? Um, True. And usually when um, when someone doesn't adopt those, it's it's an attempt to try to simplify things. But there's a reality that we have to face is that although our faith uh, on on one level in sort of its um its most distilled forms is very simple right Jesus died in order to save sinners from the wrath of God and he had to be God to do that um that that is the kind of the core christian confession but when you distill it down to these simplified ways of speaking you you lend uh you lend yourself to running into a bunch of different kinds of heretical things. So for example, if you read, um, the Baptist faith and message, um, which is a, a modernized version of the New Hampshire declaration, it's actually modalism right on, on the surface. Now, I don't think anybody who was in the original drafting body was trying to be a modalist, but the way that it's written is modalism. And so what happens is, uh, you have the BFM 2000 and then a bunch of independent churches, independent Baptist churches have adopted the BFF BFM 2000, the BFF 2000, the BFM 2000, <laughs> and then distilled that even further. And so now you have some really, really screwy faith statements out there, um, right. where if they had adopted a, a robust confession that articulates the faith in a technical and detailed, you know, detailed manner, then you, you are less likely to run into those kinds of things. And the other thing is that um, for those churches that that have a really simplified faith statement, you know, most most faith statements that I read online when I'm looking at a church are somewhere between eight and 12 points. Um, and they're the really big points. And that's fine. But it does give the impression that um, these 12 points are the only theological um, stakes that we put in the ground. And so there's there's all these other theological presuppositions that are underneath the surface that the church implicitly holds, but hasn't made a statement to that effect anywhere. And so you end up going to visit that church and you think, oh, this is a pretty decent church. They've got a pretty decent faith statement. And all right. of a sudden you realize, well, there's this element of theology that maybe isn't crazy, but it's just not where I'm at. And so a, point. a more robust confessional faith statement really does help to, as you said, it gives an element of transparency to your church's public 
public confession. Um, and then it, it protects pastors from, from congregations and it protects right congregations on. from pastors. And, right and I wish that we lived in a world that that wasn't necessary, but it, it is. And so if, if you're in a church that doesn't have a faith statement and your pastor starts teaching something screwy, you have no recourse whatsoever. You can't go to the elders and say the pastor's teaching something that's contrary to our faith statement because there is no faith statement. Um, and so something like um, women in ministry, for example, most church faith statements that are modeled after the um, BFM, one of the things that they take out of the BFM when they adopt it or when they modify it is a statement about gender parity or gender equal, uh, gender complementarianism versus egalitarianism. So they take that out, even though the church still holds a position of some sort, where if you had uh, included a more robust confession or catechism as part of your faith statement, it protects the pastor from that kind of thing. And then it protects the congregation from the pastor moving a direction that uh, the congregation doesn't want to. Right. That was the last thing I wanted to bring up, and I'm glad you went there. The confession really is a great help to a pastor, which is why I love this question has come from a pastor. It's very thoughtful. And by the way, I'm sure our brother Adam has above average theological acumen. Mm -hmm. The thing about this, though, is as long as the confession is thoroughly biblical and not provincial, it can be really a great aid to the pastor because right. in the hands of pastoral and spiritual leaders, it can really vitally serve unity and clarity. I mean, the confession is this wonderful mix of orthodoxy and orthopraxy all at once. Right. And the purpose, of course, is to bolster both unity and clarity. It liberates us from self-imposed standards, and it also makes the church open to all under the same standards. And it strikes me in thinking about this question that in the wake of revivalism, many American Christians have sought this kind of fantastic and emotional experience of an angst-ridden conversion rather than the quiet, incremental growth of catechetical instruction. Right. Because in biblical terms, sometimes we get enamored with this idea of saying, well, we see or we seek after the Apostle Paul's dramatic Damascus Road conversion as the normative Christian experience rather than Timothy's covenantial nurture by his mother and grandmother, right. which I think in my mind is a form of that really private, almost secret, continuous instruction that's incremental and accumulates over time. So in other words... I think the overwhelming biblical evidence tells us that Timothy's experience is normative and Paul's unique encounter with Christ is just descriptive and not prescriptive. Right. So I, I love the question from this angle because I think our brother Adam's church would definitely, what church would not benefit from this? And right. I, you know, I, I've been, I've attended lots of different churches and I would say in my experience, those that are not confessional, the largest problem that they have is that this, this, this kind of thing isn't well-defined so whether in the course of human affairs something comes up or they need to actually make a statement because the situation arises, whether it arises slowly or all at once, they have no ground to stand on, like you've just said, because yeah. it's not documented anywhere. It's not that people haven't been thoughtful about it. It may very well be that the pastor has a position in his mind or the elders have agreed in pride that this is how we're going to handle it. But since nobody knows and there is no common understanding, it can be troublesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one last thing before we maybe talk about how, how do you do this is... Um, Another way that a confession protects a church is it ties into that idea of not having to reinvent the wheel, right? So we live in a day and age, um, you know, uh, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, um, even probably 30 years ago, a controversy arises in one part of the church. And for the most part, nobody hears anything about it, right? That's true. It, it doesn't really affect churches on one side of the country um, unless it, it becomes something that sort of like gets into the seminaries and affects like the next generation of pastors. Um, 
But the average kind of run of the mill um, theological controversy that crops up online these days, you know, like EFS or um, like the Lordship salvation controversy um, that's kind of coming back around some of the things that we've talked about federal vision these kinds of things most people in the church still have never heard of them but where a confession really helps um, even if you don't adopt it formally as a church but you have it as kind of a background piece where the pastor is just faithfully making use of these tools is let's say that a young man in your in your congregation um, has suddenly read about EFS and says, Oh man, that really sounds great. That really makes it a lot easier to defend complementarianism if I can root it in the Trinity. Well, in right. a, in your average evangelical church, that doesn't really, apart from a probably pretty bad statement about what the Trinity is in their faith statement, doesn't have much in the way of doctrinal standards for the Trinity. That is going to happen a lot easier than if you're in a church where, um, you know, where the kids all memorize that uh, the, the answer to the question, how many persons are there in the Trinity is there are three persons in the Trinity. Uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, right? If you if your kids are memorizing that question and answer, or even just understanding the, the doctrine of the Trinity as the confession lays out, it really, really does exclude most of the really bad errors about the Trinity. And so when they run into something, maybe maybe all of a sudden this new kid transfers into your kid's high school and it sounds like he's a Christian, but all of a sudden you find out he's a Jehovah's Witness. Well, if your kid doesn't really understand what's going on uh, with the doctrine of Christology, because he's never been properly catechized, because the church is kind of squishy on that because it doesn't have a faith statement, it's a lot easier for them to sort of fall away and wander into some of these errant movements or errant theologies than if they were raised understanding the Orthodox faith as presented in the catechisms. So it's just a really practical hedge that sort of protects congregations and pastors from wandering into these weird, uh, weird positions that they otherwise may have easily wandered into. Right on. So let's hit real quick some ways in which he might move in this kind of confessional direction, at least a formal sense. And of course, my typical disclaimer is that I'm not a pastor. And I would say I'm a bit out of my depth here in how to recommend that kind of move. What I can say that I think would be helpful to me as a lay person, if my church were going to do exactly this thing, is one, this is probably easier if the culture, so to speak, if the knowledge base of the theological convictions of your church already comport with the confessions, then perhaps it's just an open door to move in that direction by work with the eldership. One of the things you might be able to do is in your normal course of preaching to pull in more from the confessions such that you're just, they're being impounded with all of the, the, the theological data, all of the convictions that are present in the confessions such that after, after a time you can just say, we just want to codify this. This is what we believe. This is what I'm preaching. The congregation is tracking with you and you say, let's codify this. The other way to maybe formally introduce it, if not again through the basic preaching, would be to actually do something on the side. And that would be, you know, many churches that have Sunday evening services just go through the confessions. Even if they're not confessional, they might use that as the primary resource. That might be a good way. And another way to do that same thing would be uh, to do it if you have a regular type of study together or a, a prayer meeting. Anytime we can get the people of the church together and use this as a kind of a foundation for what you're going to teach, presuming, again, that's already being taught, this is a great way as kind of a, an open gateway into those things. And then, of course, to work with your elders to make that change. Sounds like our brother Adam could affect that change, but he's being very thoughtful in how he moves along. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm also not a pastor. Um but I think that anytime you're going to make some sort of change in the church, um, whether it's a 
real practical change um, or a theological change. Um, it, it benefits the church to start that change from the pulpit. So right. your point of bringing in confessions and catechisms in the regular teaching ministry of the church to sort of show how these documents are biblical and rooted in the biblical testimony, I think that's really good. But I also think, um, you know, if if this this person was going to be making a change where they were going to, the church was going to adopt a confession. It would make sense for probably a, a long time ahead of time, probably like a year ahead of time to start exploring the theology, which undergirds the, the way that the church has used and made confessions throughout the ages and to preach from the pulpit that. So um, Paul teaches Timothy to obey the pattern of sound words that was handed down to him. Um, there's this repeated refrain in the New Testament about the faith that was once handed down right. uh, to the saints. So we, we tend to read those. And when you're kind of a general evangelical who's not confessional, you read those in this really abstract sense, right? This pattern of sound words. It's probably just talking about the scripture, the, the faith. Faith once delivered is this abstract, ethereal thing. But the way that the Bible is using those terms is actually incredibly concrete. When it talks about the faith handed down, it's talking about a set, defined, and identifiable body of doctrine that was handed down from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. And this pattern of sound words that Paul is talking about is the same thing. He's commanding Timothy, remember the forms of words that I use. Remember the things that I taught you appoint men who can teach those things and defend them follow the pattern of sound words that i gave to you so so preaching from the pulpit through those passages and explaining how they undergird um the confessional way of doing christianity i think would really be a big benefit to a congregation who's wanting to to move this direction or to a pastor who's wanting to help their congregation learn to want to move that direction well said you ready for some more? Let's do it. Get ready. Hi there. This is Luke from Michigan. I had a question for you guys that I thought maybe you'd like to pick apart for me a little bit. Uh, one of the things that's always puzzled me about the Reformed worldview, the Reformed faith, is the division of the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial. Uh, I understand the distinction at least I think I understand the distinction as far as what each section of the law would cover. And I understand why it can practically break down into those divisions. But what I don't see in the New Testament is evidence that the apostles saw this as the rationale behind the change, uh, whatever change that took place between old and new. They saw that this tripartite division of the law was uh, a way to explain or a way to and new. Um, and so if you could help me understand or see from the New Testament where this division of moral, civil, and ceremonial is, and maybe how the apostles used that specific distinction in order to help Christians to understand their relationship to the Mosaic Covenant, uh, that would be very helpful. Thank you. So our brother Luke 
coming right out of the gate with a heavy question. And this is great, but it is dangerous. I put it in this podcast and that was dangerous because this could be its own podcast yeah. by itself. So we'll do our best as, as we can to be brief and provide enough context and groundwork, I think, to lay a foundation to answer the question. But that is some work in of itself. Yeah. So I'm going to distill down to this. How did the apostles use the distinction between moral civic and ceremonial law to help Christians understand the relationship to the Mosaic Covenant. So, oh my goodness, there is so much that we could say about this. So, uh, let, let I'm going to start with like just quickly how I understand the civic law, maybe, maybe all three of those really quickly, and then we can get into why it was necessary that the apostles really need to delineate and flesh all those out. So, well, Israel was originally, of course, a theocracy ruled by God. So, he communicated his will directly through prophets like Moses. So, in that way, there was, of course, a large body of legislation that was laid down, governing all kinds of things, murder, theft, immorality, and misdemeanors. And it also meant the Israelite state had divine sanction to impose every type of punishment from the death penalty downwards in response to all of those actions. So I think the first thing we have to contend with in this question is, has the Israelite civic law passed away? And to me, at least, it's clear that the answer has to be yes, because it was bound up with the Old Testament economy. Jesus announced the demise of theocracy when the kingdom passed from Israel to the church. So the kingdom of God said Jesus to the Jews will be taken away from you and given to people who produce its fruit. That's from like Matthew 21. So these people are the church, which is to be found among all nations. So the Mosaic civic law belonged in its binding authority to the period when one nation was ruled by God as its immediate head and judge. So what about the ceremonial law then? So it, what is it necessary? Is it still in force? I think actually the New Testament is like super explicit about that. Christ came to fulfill the ceremonial law in every detail. He was the antitype actually of all types and shadows of the ceremonial law, the tabernacle and the temple with their furnishings, and especially their sacrificial offerings. So here we have by one sacrifice for sins forever, our great high priest has done away with the need for the ceremonial law. That is again, the beauty of, of the gospel. So when we get then into this, moral law. This is, I think, really where the, what the question centers on. Because most of the time in our current debate about antinomianism and legalism, it's about moral law, not the other two. So antinomianism, of course, is that view that we've talked about before, where the moral law, basically Ten Commandments, is not binding on Christians as a rule of life. And so for me, the purpose of the moral law is reflecting God's own essential attributes. So as God is spiritual, so is his law. Since God is holy, his law is also holy. That's Romans 7. So as God cannot change, it follows that his law cannot change. It has eternal validity, and it can never be abrogated. So God, the creator, has imposed his law on all created things. That's angels and men alike. So as the objective expression of his will, his law exists. As the moral governor of the universe, he is entitled to the unquestioning obedience of all his creatures. So obedience to God because he is creator and to his moral law because it reflects his sovereign will lies at the heart of all true religion. That's, I think, why the apostles were trying to delineate all of these different pieces, part and parcel. And that's also the center of sanctification. So becoming a Christian does not alter the fact that I'm still created under obligation to obey. What conversion does, what regeneration does, is to enable me, per our first question, to render to God that obedience to which I was incapable as an unbeliever. And what's even more than that is it grants me an overriding desire to obey since God is now also my redeemer through Christ Jesus. 
I'm going to take a breath there and pause. I just dropped like a bunch of stuff and, and let you respond before we get into like even maybe a little bit more. So why the apostles wanted that distinction? What what say you about the moral civic and ceremonial law? Yeah. So this is one of those things that we have to do a little bit of hermeneutics before we can answer the question. So we have to understand that the apostles, for the most part, um, uh, well, not for the most part, the apostles were all Jewish Christians. <laughs> they were all Jews yes. and who became Christians. And so this distinction that that we talk about in Reformed theology of the distinction between the moral, the civic, and the ceremonial law, this was largely assumed by the apostles because it was the standard understanding of the law in the Old Testament economy, right? right. So, so there were certain things, certain laws that only applied when there were when there was a king, right? So that that law doesn't apply when there's not a king, right? The law that the king can uh, can con- conscript people to serve in the army doesn't apply during the era of Moses, right? We don't see those same kinds of things happen. Um, so there's this assumption in the Jewish mind prior to the advent of Christ that these distinctions exist. So we we should not be surprised when Jewish apostles writing to both Gentiles, but also to Jews don't explain this, uh, this distinction explicitly. And so just reading from the, um, from the second London Baptist confession, because this is one of the one areas that I actually think the, uh, the Baptist confession articulates the same thing in a better way. It says the whole, this is uh, one six, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contain, contained. So the, the Westminster is saying the same thing, but it says by good and necessary consequences. This is much, much more clear in that these distinctions are necessarily contained in the scripture because of right. how we see God's law applied. So even in the Old Testament, as I said, the laws governing how kings operate don't make a lot of sense in a time period in, in Israel's history where there are no kings. Or for example, Moses gives instructions in the law about certain ways to build a house or certain ways to farm your field, right? Or, or things that are going to happen where if, if such and such a person goes into slavery, then their brother is supposed to redeem them out of slavery in order that their land does not go to another tribe. But this was all given to the people of Israel before there was a land for any of this to apply to. And so there's these different, and I hesitate to use the word, but there's not a better one. There's these different dispensations throughout Israel's history where we see that certain elements of the law that Moses gave, they don't apply because the context is different. And so we see the ceremonial element are those religious worship elements that apply only during the time of a Levitical ministry. Right. So we also see these civil elements that only apply during the theocratic existence of the nation of Israel on earth. Those two things, since they are sort of transient based on the context that the people find themselves in, then it's necessarily the case that those things are not universal across all times and places. The moral law, however, is universal across all times and places. And that's where we see the apostles land, right? We have all these things that the apostles say, no, no, we don't have to do that anymore. The food, the, the dietary restrictions, we don't have to do that anymore. Circumcision was a ceremonial element of the old covenant. We don't have to do that anymore. But 
you better not murder or commit adultery because that's the universal law of God, the moral law of God, which, as you said, reflects his nature. So we have to be careful that just because we don't see the apostles explicitly make these distinctions or refer to them, that we then then reason out they must not exist. Because as I said, they also don't make a lot of arguments for monotheism, right? That's assumed right. in the in the air that monotheism is reality. So the lack of an explicit argument on the on the lips of the apostles doesn't mean that it's not the apostolic teaching. This is such a wonderfully contemporary question, isn't it? Because there's so much right now it really is. that people are wrestling with in terms of what is the place of the moral law? And we've talked about those who are even sometimes preaching from the pulpit that the Ten Commandments are no longer binding or valid, right. not just as as a way of like observing who God is, but as a rule of life. And it's clear, even just from what you just said, it really emphasized to me that God imposed his moral law on man from the very beginning. It's not that Moses made it up. So Adam and Eve suffered for breaking it, as did Cain. That law was written on the hearts of all men. And it was reinstituted in the time of Moses in order to define and condemn sin. And John actually describes sin as lawlessness or the transgression of the law. So there's this wonderful continuity that goes right into what the apostles are saying. So to be saved from sin, therefore, means to be saved from transgressing the law and thus able to keep it. So I think in enumerating this distinction, the apostles are establishing that the ongoing function of God's law is not to serve as a standard to be met for justification, but as a guide for Christian living. And that's where all this debate rages, this idea of like being completely free to fail or almost like being willing to fail God's law because as if grace will always pick you up there. And if you tell those who are tending toward legalism that they shouldn't talk so much about obedience and the law, you're pushing them toward the antinomian spirit that cannot see the law as a wonderful gift of God. And if you tell those toward, toward antinomianism that they should point people more to divine threats and talk more about the dangers of disobedience, all you're doing is pushing them toward the legal spirit that sees the law as a covenant of works rather than as a way to honor and give pleasure to the one who saved them. So legalism and really antinomianism in this respect here, this is what the apostles are trying to defeat, I think, from the beginning and the brilliance of the gospel as God gives it to them is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. Eve sees God's law but she loses sight of the true God himself. And so abstracting his law from his loving and generous person, she was deceived into hearing, quote unquote, law only as a negative deprivation and not as the wisdom of the heavenly father. And that is what we are all subject to. And I think the very reason why the apostles made the distinction. Yeah. And I want to, um, I want to read this, not because I have any strong desire to harp on Wayne Grudem, but because I want to demonstrate that this question is a contemporary and relevant question. Because sometimes I hear Reformed Christians talk about this kind of question as though it's sort of like, why are we talking about this? So this is... Um, a reading plan that's available on esv.org. It comes from, or it's it's a modified version of something that Wayne Grudem wrote in his most recent book on Christian ethics. Um, and it says here, it, the, the whole reading plan is oriented around understanding the Sabbath. It says, God required the Jewish people to rest from their ordinary work one day per week. This was a gift from God to his people. They were not to think of themselves as oppressed slaves required to work until the point of exhaustion seven days a week. God gave them a day when they could be free from work to rest, to worship, and to enjoy the presence of God and fellowship with each other. So right, so far, so good. 
Next, he says, here again, we notice the difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. Since the Mosaic Covenant has been terminated, New Testament Christians do not have to rest on the seventh day or any other day, specific day in seven. Yet we still need to recognize that we need periodic times of rest. We do not yet have perfect resurrection bodies that will not grow weak or old. Therefore, it is wise, but not commanded, for Christians in the New Covenant age also to take regular times of rest from their ordinary work. And then it goes on to say a little bit more that isn't germane to the point. But here what we have, and this this is what happens, okay? You're always going to have a law. Like, we are creatures who operate under law. That's That's... Con- constitutive of our nature. So we're either going to operate under the law that God gives us, or we're going to operate under a law of our own devising, right? That's largely what the book of Galatians is about. God, God releases us from a particular law. He releases us from the ceremonial obligations of the old covenant. Um, and he brings us into a new covenant, which now has a different set of ceremonial obligations, but they're not right. ceremonial obligations that bring us life. And this is the kicker. Neither were the ceremonial obligations of the Old Testament. Exactly. Right? The law was never designed to be a way to obtain eternal life, except for Adam. Right. Adam for Adam, it was for Adam. It was designed the, the positive law, which God gave him was designed as a way for him to obtain enough merit to justify God granting him eternal life. That was the function of the covenant of work. That's not what it was ever for in, in a post fall world. And so what, what Wayne Grudem here and this this may not be exactly Wayne Grudem's words, but this is definitely a distillation of his work is we've now taken the perfect law which God has given us, which commands us to rest one day in seven and set it aside expressly for the public and private worship of God and not to uh, to concern ourselves needlessly with our ordinary recreations and uh, employments, right? That's straight out of the Westminster Larger Catechism. And it's, it's the biblical teaching. But instead of following that wise, correct law, he's saying that now it's wise for Christians to take, take some sort of periodic time of rest, whatever that may be. But why? Like what wisdom is he drawing from the Bible apart right. from the command to observe one day in seven as a day of rest and worship? What, what wisdom is he observing from scripture that leads him to that conclusion? So what he's done is he's created a new law to replace the law of God that he has disregarded. And that he's not doing that on purpose, right? Wayne Grudem is not, Uh, trying to be an antinomian, but Wayne Grudem is an antinomian in reference to the fourth commandment because he has just disregarded God's direction for how his creatures are supposed to operate in covenant with him with one day set aside out of seven for rest and worship. That's it. That's all I got. (laughs) Sorry. No, no, that was such a powerful ending. Like you just (laughs) mic dropped that. I did not drop my mic. You would have heard that. Well, that's actually correct. That was a really good response. All right. All I can say is, are you ready for just one more question? Can we handle that? Let's do it. All right. Here we go. Hey, guys. This is uh, Adam from Colorado. Just have a question for you guys. I have, I'm in a discussion with somebody regarding the eternal submission issue, um, Christ submitting to or the son submitting to the father from eternity past. And what I'm finding is, is when I'm trying to pull up resources um, for, to show the position against that, um, there's a lot of appealing to, you know, older 
older writers and confessions and creeds, but I'm not filing anybody um, commenting on scriptural passages that show that show against it. Um, whereas the person I'm in the discussion in is giving me resources that are full of scriptural passages. So I'm just really having a hard time um, sorting out this issue. So if you guys are aware of any, any scriptural passages that would show that the um, eternal submission of the Son is, is wrong, or if you know of any resources that, that would address that issue scripturally, I'd appreciate it. Love what you're doing, guys. Sorry for the rambling. Thanks. So another brother named Adam, not the same one from before, but asks a really great question that hopefully we can give some really succinct answers to. And that is, what passages of Scripture specifically demonstrate the error of the eternal functional subordination of the Son? And for those who have listened to us before, or maybe this is their first introduction and are just hearing these letters EFS or eternal functional subordination, let me just quick do a quick summary, and this will be quick, of what that is so people have a sense. So in recent years, there's been this debate that has emerged among conservative evangelicals over what's called this eternal functional subordination of the Son. And at the center of that dispute is the question of how we are to understand scriptural teaching regarding the nature of the Son's eternal relationship to the Father. Is the obedience of the Son to the Father limited merely to the Incarnation, or does it extend to the Son's eternal relationship with the Father? If all of that that you just heard sounds absolutely crazy, and your eyes have just glazed over and you almost passed out, that's okay, because in answer to Adam's question, here's what I'm going to recommend. I'm taking the easy road on this one, Tony, and then I'll turn it over to you for some resources, because there are... I think the best way to answer this question is to look at, I don't want to just cover out, say, the full counsel of the scriptures, but there's a lot that must be taken as a compendium rather than pulling out and proof texting individual verses, though they do exist. And so what I'd recommend to get a real full treatment is I'm going to do something super self-promoting and recommend three episodes of this podcast called The Reformed Brotherhood, which has talked about <laughs> this at great length. And I've, I've ranked them, stack ranked them for you in what I think is the order of how germane they are to addressing his question. So check out episode 49. I'll give you the numbers too. 49, which is called Scripture and the EFS Controversy. The second one is episode 78, which is the EFS Retrospective. And that features Todd Pruitt. That's an interview that you did with him. And then the last one is episode 101 on Arianism. So episodes 49, 78, 101, those are both probably winning lottery numbers. And I would say just great episodes because that question deserves a full treatment because he also asked for some other resources that might help him to process and explain this. And I'm not saying we're the experts, but we've we've talked about this quite a bit. And I think we've really been able to flesh out this issue, not in a definitive way per se, but we've looked at it from various angles. So I want to recommend 4978101 of our podcast. Uh, what other scriptures might you recommend to our brother Adam and other resources on EFS? Yeah, so also episode 47 uh, was an EFS ep- uh, episode. That is good for someone who's trying to get the lay of the land of, of what ES- EFS is. Yeah, and, thank you. And what we, you know, w- what is good even call. meant by that acronym. But the episodes you recommended definitely are are more important in terms of a response. So this is another one of those things, and I hope this doesn't sound like a cop-out answer, but... The scripture is not addressing 
EFS. So right. if we come to the scripture asking it to provide a specific response to EFS, we're going to find ourselves disappointed because nobody in the first century had ever heard of EFS. So what the scriptures are doing, however, is making an implicit positive case for the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. So what I mean by that is it's implicit in that we're talking about um, letters which are not intended to make an argument for the Trinity, but are grappling with the reality of the Trinity. And so you have to synthesize the scriptures together in order to get the doctrine of the Trinity. So my answer to the question would be, any scripture that's used to argue for the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, when properly understood, refutes the unorthodox doctrine of eternal functional subordination. So where would I go to make that argument for a proper orthodox doctrine of the Trinity? The, the, the place supreme is John chapter one, right? So right, right in the first chapter of the book of John, right in the first three or four verses, we have everything we need to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity, right? So verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So in the beginning is a way that John is talking about to bring you back to your understanding and to call your mind back to Genesis chapter one. So when it says in the beginning, it doesn't mean at the beginning, it means God existed and then there was the beginning. So in that eternal period, if you want to, you can't call it a period, but in that eternal whatever prior to the beginning of time was God and with God was the word. But the only thing that existed prior to logically prior to this beginning is God. And so the word himself must also be God. So that's the logic that John is employing here. In the beginning was the word. So there's this entity that John is calling the word that existed prior to the advent of time. The word was with God. So we have this distinction between the word and between God, but then the word also was God. So we have, we have these two figures in John's writing, the word and God, and we have both of them being God. So the only way to articulate that without escaping into some sort of logical incoherency is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And so then we go on to verse two. He was in the beginning with God. Verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And so the act of creation, which in the Old Testament is attributed to God, right? God alone is the one who creates. That act of creation is an act that the other figure in this passage also is engaged in. And what that does for us is it shows that every work of God, you know, we, we, there's more theology that has to be done to get to every work, but at least creation, which is sort of seen as God's chief and primary work in the Old Testament is that he created the world, right? He's the, the Lord who created the heavens and the earth. He's, he's the God of the universe. All of these things, when the Israelites want to explain to non-Israelite people who this God they worship is, they basically say he's the God who created everything. And that excludes all of the other gods who usually only created or were involved in a part of creation. So this right. God who created everything is also the word, but the word and this God are not exactly the same thing. So what that gets us to is this inseparable operation where both parties in view are engaged in a single act. And then of course we bring in the Holy Spirit who is also God and that gives us the third person of the Trinity. But the key is that we don't see in the scriptures that the son is somehow like a junior partner in the operation of creation. 
right? He has a role, but his role is is a role that only God can fulfill, right? So we have these three persons that are engaged in every act equally. They they relate to each other as equals, right? When you see in the Old Testament and you see these glimpses of um, the persons interacting with each other, you don't see the, the angel of the Lord worshiping God, right? In those passages, when, when the angel of the Lord appears, the people give that angel worship and that angel accepts worship and only God accepts worship. But we don't see passages where like in the book of revelation, where John falls down and worships an angel and the angel says, don't do that. I'm just a servant like you. We don't see that with the angel of the Lord in the old Testament. So we have right. to, we have to synthesize all these doctrines together. And what we get is this picture of three persons who are equally engaged in every work they're equal in power and they, they, they have to be equal in power or they couldn't be equally engaged in every work. And because they're equal in power, they, they're, uh, they're owed the same worship by creatures that the other two are. So we can't end up with a situation where, like uh, Bruce Ware says, where the father could have operated apart from the son, but he chose to operate apart from the son. Like you can't get to that theology if you take seriously the scriptural testimony about these shared operations, these co-equal operations that the, the, the Trinity engages in. That's a great summary of John 1, and you'll get that and oh so much more if you listen to all four of those episodes because yeah. we talk about that at length. But there's good heavy lifting to be done there. You're right about emphasizing proper theology about the Trinity is automatically going to defeat and come against EFS. And maybe one last book to that end that I would commend in that same genre would be um, James White's The Forgotten Trinity, which is also good, which I think for like a lay person that's learning to kind of want to get their feet wet, but gain a little deeper appreciation, understanding for the Trinity and all the nuances that you just spoke about. So they could both increase the capacity of their worship and expand their heart to receive more of Christ and the work that he's done. That would be a great opportunity as well. Yeah. Another book is um, there's a book called The Son Who Learned Obedience by Glenn Butner Jr. Um, it's a phenomenal book. Glenn was one of the first people who was sort of exegetically responding to this theology. Um, he started doing so in uh, a couple journal articles in, in the Evangelical Theological Society Journal. And if you're looking for good theological and exegetical responses to the arguments that the, the uh, EFS advocates make, that book is really the only full-length book that I'm aware of that's been published to date. I'm sure that there are more coming. Um, and then also, um, it, it sort of doesn't seem like this would help, but uh, the book Rediscovering the Holy Spirit by Michael Horton, the way that this helps is he goes at length to demonstrate how the Spirit is not a junior partner in, in the operations of the Trinity. So right. he, he's doing a lot of the same kinds of work that I just did with the, with the Son in reference to creation. He does that with the Holy Spirit across basically the whole scope of redemptive history. So he, he goes into in-depth exegetical arguments to prove that the Holy Spirit is a co-equal participant in every work that the, that God does. So that those arguments can then be uh, sort of expanded and applied to issues that we might have about the way the sun operates. Um, so that's really important as well. And I would give this final, maybe strange piece of advice. And there's no doubt that I'm speaking this out because I need to hear it first. And that is, Whenever we are speaking with somebody and we want to come against the argument that they're making, 
the best thing that we can do for ourselves as Christians who want to love the Lord God with all of our heart and all of our minds is pick up these resources that we just talked about and read them in such a way where our first priority is not to find the way that we can combat something, but the way that we can be taught and to learn how to worship properly. When we do that, when we're, we're reading and learning to worship and expand our doxology, I think all the other stuff comes together in our ability to articulate that. And I'm not saying that I don't think that this was Adam's intent at all in, in dropping the question with us. But I'm saying that more is it's just wonderful when somebody does say, you know, I think this is the way that this particular theological position works. And you say, well, I know that's not quite right. And w- there can be a tendency to just gather up all the resources, make all the notes, think in your mind as you're reading. I need to make sure I pay attention to something. So, oh, that's a really good argument. I'm going to highlight that, memorize those words so I can use it. Instead of just trying to absorb into worship by what we're learning. Yeah. And out of that worship, out of our hearts being changed because our minds are being conformed and renewed by the truth of the scriptures, then we're able out of the overflow of that kind of heart to speak and to address the person and to do so in a way that's not purely argumentative, but that desires to speak the truth in love, because that's so hard to do. And I think part of the reason we, we are struggle with speaking the truth in love is because we're just so focused on nailing people over the head with the truth that we forget how loving it is that God would even allow us to learn this type of thing and yeah. open our eyes and give us the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe one last thought uh, that kind of ties into uh, the other Adam's question about confessionalism so is many Adams. There, there are a lot. You know, every time you said our brother Adam, I got really confused because we have a brother <laughs> named Adam. We have a brother um, named Adam. Yeah. So, the key is to it, memorizing the catechism. Uh, the shorter catechism is really helpful and important um, because, you know, William Perkins. This was something that really, uh, uh, like, influenced me and impressed upon me. The book Art uh, Art of Prophecy, right? Art, Art of Prophesying by Williams Perkins so good. is basically a preacher's manual, right? It's a it's a brief explanation of what preaching is and how to do it. And he makes this point early in the book that I just thought was so interesting is he basically says all of the major heresies have already been dealt with in the church. So study those well, because it doesn't make sense to reinvent the wheel. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but he he makes the argument that the church has already dealt with most of the things in his day, right? This was 400 years ago, 300 years ago. They already had dealt with most of the things that they were encountering. So why not just plumb the resources of history and utilize the arguments that were already successful in overcoming these heresies? And so the, the catechisms... Um, are useful because they give you really, really short, uh, brief and simple answers that just really cut to the quick on these. So for example, um, if you were to, you know, we have this, this ongoing conversation about, um, Lordship salvation, right? And it, like I said, it keeps coming around. Well, if you just read the Westminster larger catechisms statement on what repentance is, it very clearly places it within the within the realm of sanctification. Yet, I don't know anyone that reading the um, reading the Westminster Larger Catechism's answer, even the Lordship Salvation advocates, they read that and go, "Yep, that's what repentance is. That makes perfect sense." So now you've got a common point where someone looks at it and goes, "Yep, this is a this is a reliable source." And you can say, "Well, but towards the end here." It includes the idea that we're endeavoring to walk in holiness after our God in all of his precepts. That's not something that an unjustified person can do. So so a person who's doing this, who's repenting, that has to come after justification. 
logically speaking. So, and, and EFS is the same way. Um, I'll, I'll promote one more episode and I'll put the link in the show notes and I'll actually do it. Um, the episode that I did on the reform standard on, uh, the question in the catechism about how many persons are there in the Godhead, that answer. And the fact that the three persons in the Godhead are equal in substance and uh, equal in power and glory, you can't have those three statements. They can't be equal in substance because EFS requires a plurality of wills and a will is part of the substance, right? So you can't be equal in substance. They can't be equal in power if this if the father is actually an authority over the son and could act apart from the son, that's a difference in power. And they can't be equal in glory if in, in point of fact, in the imminent Trinity or in the uh, ad intra Trinity, the son and spirit worship the father. That's not an equality of glory because the father is receiving glory from the son, but not giving glory to the son, which is also a, a total like absolute contradiction to explicit statements in scripture, but that's a different thing. So if you've got those three things in place and you really understand what the catechism is getting at, you've already excluded EFS off the table at the get go. So it's important to understand those because I'll tell you what, when I saw this question, there was a part of me that's like, man, I don't, I mean, like I know the Bible pretty well and I've got a, a fair amount of scripture memorized, but I don't know off the top of my head, which passages to go to. Right. But if you've memorized the catechism, you've got the theology there and then right. you can start to memorize the scriptures around that theology as well. Right. So basically for question cast, just like they make that joke about, you know, in Sunday school, there's always just like a series, no matter what the question is, a series of right answers like Jesus, God, yeah. Bible. So that's what we need to do is make a list for this particular podcast. And one of those answers would clearly be confessions, catechism. Yeah. Yep, exactly. We're just come with standard answers. Once again, I'm super grateful, crazy thankful for all the brothers and sisters that give us a call, <laughs> drop us a voicemail. Because what's great about when we do these question casts is it's a conversation shaped by community. And I totally dig that. Yeah. So if you want to get at us, there's a couple ways you can do that. You can email us at reformed or info at reformbrotherhood.com. If you're into the Twitter game and you got a strong Twitter game in particular, come check us out. Reformed Brohood on Twitter. That's our handle. And then the best way, the, our preferred way for you to kind of join in this conversation is to use your own voice. And you can call us and leave a voicemail at 607-444-2767. Bros. Please call the bros hotline. Eh, that's probably not the best way to say that. Bros. Please call us and leave a voicemail. We are th so thankful that so many people have done that. And we've said it before, but we'll say it again because it's absolutely true. Even if we don't get back to you at all or in a timely fashion, we read everything. We listen to everything. We're really thankful for everybody being a part of this journey along with us. Absolutely. Jesse, I think that just about does it this week. Oh, it definitely has done it. It does. Well, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>